This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is dedicated to the 19 American soldiers who made the ultimate sacrifice during the Battle of Mogadishu, or as you know it, Black Hawk Down. My guest is Major Jeff Struker, who as a 24-year-old sergeant was there during that fateful battle. We reflect on those moments, his role, and his faith. This is Pick Up the Six podcast. Jeff, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the show. I'm so grateful. How are you? Brian, it's great to be with you, man. I'm thrilled to, to share your story uh, for our listeners to get to know you. And if they think, oh, I've seen Black Hawk Down before, they'll be able to pinpoint who you were in that movie on what is a, a rather fateful two days, uh, but just a fateful moment I know in your lives and, and in many more. But let's get to know you a little bit and talk about your journey to the army. And it's a, man, it is a, it's quite a resume. Uh, it's an incredible uh, uh, path and, and journey. You won the best Ranger competition. You're in the, you're in the Ranger hall of fame. Uh, oh, but, but what got you there, right? There's a, there's stuff that must've led up to that. So how'd you end up in yeah. the army? Yeah, I didn't really uh, grow up planning to join the military. In fact, I don't really come from a military family necessarily. And my buddy in high school, literally it went like this. My buddy in my senior year of high school just showed up and uh, joined the army on a whim. And then like the next day came to school and tried to convince me to join the army. And his his advice or I mean, his uh, logic was, hey, Jeff, I just joined the army and it'll be cool. You should join the <laughs> army. What he didn't tell me, Tony was this kid's name. And what Tony didn't tell me is the recruiter was giving him extra money if he could convince his idiot friends to join the army. And sure enough, I went to talk to a recruiter and the rest is what you just described to your listeners. It's, it's wild, man, the way uh, fate will twist in those moments. And, and a friend, one, wants to get his buddy to do it, then yeah, gets a little bit extra for closing some business. Yep. Tony was a recruiter in his early days before. Yeah, he was... Tony, Tony ended up making some money off of me is what he did. Yeah, I bet he did. Uh, so that's the a bit of a road less traveled to get there. You know, it's funny, Jeff. You know, we've, we've done, man, over 70 episodes of Pick Up the Six podcast at this point. And we've talked to a lot of folks who have done really incredible things in their military careers. And you're, you're one of many that told me it wasn't really something I thought about. Didn't have a deep military family history. It just kind of becomes, you know, that path. And, and, and for you, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, what he placed in front of you maybe in that moment, too. Yeah. Um, there was some more uh, events going on, though. I mean, I grew I was living in a small farm community. Um, where I was living at the time, if you didn't own a farm, you didn't have a future, literally. Um, and I didn't have a farm. So there really was no upward mobility in my small town. And I was also getting in trouble. And so when I went to the recruiter's office, I was just looking for a job and a way out of town. And of course, the army ended up being both of those things and a whole lot more. Yeah. Where were you growing up? Where did you end up? Uh, heading well, I moved around a lot, man. Um, but my senior year of high school, I was living in a small farm community in Northwest Iowa. Okay. And that was, uh, that was the path out. All right. Let, let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, but talk to me about Ranger and not just getting in the army, but ultimately ending up with the tab and, and just that the strength, distinct honor, but all the hard work that goes into it. So what's your journey into Ranger units and Ranger regiments? Yeah, so Tony's dad, uh, I, this, I didn't know this at the time, but after Tony gr had already enlisted in the Army, and when Tony's dad learned that I was considering it, he grabbed me and he pulled me off to the side. 
And he said, listen, man, if you're really thinking about this, let me just tell you, there's basically two kinds of people in the military. And I didn't know this. Tony's dad told me in this conversation that he used to be a Navy SEAL. He was in Vietnam. And he said, I saw two different kinds of people when I served in the military. There are people that are seem to be just in it for a paycheck. That's all they wanted. And then there were people that really wanted to do something and make a difference in the world. And he said, go work with the kind of people that really want to make a difference and, and uh, do something in the world. And I had no idea what I was getting into. Didn't have anybody kind of giving me any advice. But when I went to the recruiter's office that day in high, as a senior in high school, I just asked, what's the toughest job in the Army? And that recruiter was the one that started steering me towards the Army's Ranger Regiment. I didn't know the first thing about them, but he was really straightforward with me and basically said, listen, man, you probably don't have what it takes. I just need to be honest with you up front. But if you want to give it a try, this is without a doubt the toughest job in the Army. And what I was simply trying to do was to work with those guys that were going to make a difference. Mm. Um, I had, man, looking back on it now, I had no idea just how pivotal that advice was, just how important it was. And frankly, my entire military career, I have found what he said to be absolutely true. Incredible. Incredible. Again, the way that the path uh, sort of, you know, is placed in front of you. So this is 1986, 1987 kind of time frame. That's right. Right. Six years later, it's the summer of 1993. And we'll just fast forward kind of to that just incredibly pivotal moment. Do you mind setting the stage for our listeners? Because it is a long time ago to think about where we're at in the world, what's happening in Somalia, why we're there. I mean, you've got this country that that basically is just collapsed on itself. Yeah. Got no government. You got all these warlords that are, are standing up trying to battle for everything. They got guns. They got drugs. They got control of pretty much everybody. Do, do you mind just giving us a little no, refresher? You're doing a great job of describing it, Brian. Um, when people talk to me today in 2021 about Black Hawk Down, I'm like, man, seriously, that movie came out a long time ago. The book was even earlier than that. And the real deal, it's been almost 30 years now. Um, yeah, to set the stage just a little bit, as you mentioned, uh, I've been in the Army for six years by the time that I'm getting ready to go to combat in Somalia. But I guess I need to say, for me, this is not my first rodeo. Mm -hmm. um, in the late 80s and early 90s, people would say to me in the Army, if you ever go to combat, and for many guys and gals in the military, they served a 20, 25, 30-year career and never deployed ever to combat. Mm -hmm. In my case, as an Army Ranger in this special operations unit in the U.S. military, I had already been to the invasion of Panama in 1989, had already been to Desert Storm in Kuwait in 91. So by the time I get ready to go to Somalia, this is no exaggeration. I'm a 24-year-old old dude because mm -hmm. I got lots of experience as a 24-year-old, where guys that are in their 40s don't have that kind of experience. And... Yeah, there's, there's this geopolitical event that's going on in the Horn of Africa. And basically, you have a drought that has caused a famine. The famine has led to starvation of hundreds of thousands of people. Like late 1992, more than 350,000 people dead from famine all over the front page of every newspaper in the world for months. Mm -hmm. And then the United Nations and the United States show up. 
the Marines land on the beaches in the, the December of 1992. And the whole purpose is we're just going to give beans and rice to try to keep people alive that are dying literally of starvation. The country of Somalia, especially the capital city, there's no military, there's no police force. It's total chaos, which means there's nobody stopping guys from doing whatever they want. If you got guns, then you can basically accomplish whatever you want in the capital city. And the capital of Mogadishu descends into chaos pretty quickly and stays there for a long time. In the summer of 93, as the United States is handing out food, the one of the clan leaders in Somalia starts to hand out or starts to target U.S. supply convoys. Mm -hmm. He also starts to um, target United Nations workers. And as the movie describes in those first couple of minutes, he ambushes and murders 24 Pakistani United Nations workers. Which dis which prompts the United Nations Security Council to come together and to say, hey, we have to do something about this warlord in Somalia by the name of Muhammad Farah ID. I really need to point out um, to the pick up the six listeners that rangers don't go overseas to hand out food. And the guys that I had the privilege of serving with, they're not there to build the nation. Our job is to kick in doors and kill bad guys. Find bad guys, yep. And try to make it possible for there to be some peace after we leave. But but we're there to blow up stuff and to break stuff. And Task Force Ranger, which is this joint special operations task force, we go to Somalia with the mission of kill and capture. Kill or capture ID and the top ranking bad guys from his organization. Get them out of the equation. Get out of the country. Let the United Nations try to rebuild the nation, but it's not going to happen unless we kill or capture ID. That's really what led to Task Force Ranger going to Somalia in the first place. So it's October the 3rd then, and you guys get wind that basically you've got two of his guys that are sort of big deal in his group, and you got some intel on where they might be and how you can go get, go get them. So in that Ranger mentality of kill or capture, okay, we're going to launch in we're going to go get these guys. And you're leading Humvee convoys with helicopters right in the air. Right. So do you mind taking us into the third and oh, kind of sure. walking us through those moments? Yeah. A couple of things that really need to be pointed out here. One, this isn't our first combat mission. We've done a bunch of them at this point. And we're now three months into what we thought was going to be about a six-week mission. Yeah. We're getting a lot of pressure from President Clinton's administration to wrap this thing up and to get out of there because the international news is starting to say, hey, this is this is going out of Somalia is going downhill fast. Mm -hmm. And we get a tip on Sunday afternoon that two of these really high ranking leaders from my deeds clan are in the same building at the same time. Now, normally, special operators would never do a mission during the daytime. We have, at this point, only done night operations. We are basically, we have such a huge advantage at night with our tactics and our equipment that it's almost unheard of to do a daylight mission. But our commanding general catches wind of these two guys in the same building at the same time. This hasn't happened really since we've been there. And the big boss, Major General William Garrison, decides, hey, we're going to go during broad daylight and we're going to go right into the very heart of town that's controlled by ID. 
We're going to get these guys and we're going to get in and get out as fast as possible. So just like you see in, in Black Hawk Down, little birds fly in with special operators and land on the rooftops. Other rangers from my unit go in by Black Hawk helicopter and slide down some ropes. And while all of that's going on, I'm the first in a long column of Humvees that go to the target building. And we wait about a half a block away from the target building. And the general plan is special operators take the target down. The rangers that went in by helicopter will, will block everybody from getting in the target building. And then we'll all, they'll all jump on the Humvees and we'll get out of there in less than 30 minutes. That was the plan. But of course, plans never go the way you expect them to go in combat, as you well know, Brian. So one of the rangers going in on Blackhawks, he misses the rope and he lands in the city streets head first, is almost killed immediately when he gets there. And as soon as I arrive at the target building, like as soon as I get there, I'm already getting dispatched to take this wounded ranger back to the base. That's kind of how my first few minutes go during the big battle in Black Hawk Down. And what, I mean, th th there's a lot of activity that's happening, right? And, and I've seen you speak about this before and you talk about you sort of get to these checkpoints and I mean, you've been shot up and you guys are in a firefight. All these things are happening. But when, when helicopter one goes down, that's problem. It's a big, huge problem, right? Cause everybody's got to descend to help those guys. When the second one goes down, now we've really got kind of some chaos. Is that right? Is that a fair kind uh, of Yeah. I mean, you're, you're describing it pretty well. Um, I'm dispatched to take back a critically wounded ranger. On the way back, my vehicles are shot to pieces. Uh, one of the guys is killed right behind me, shot in the forehead, killed instantly. And at this point, he's the only guy from the entire, uh, our entire task force that we know is dead. Um, they get notified that, hey, the first helicopter just got shot down and it crashed in the city just a few blocks away from the target building. I'm on my way back to the base fighting for my life. And when I get back there to drop off the dead, drop off the wounded, I thought the mission was wrapping up. I thought everybody was going to get out of there pretty quickly. I get notified that a second Black Hawk has gone down and Mike Durant's helicopter has now crashed. The problem is we put the search and rescue force. This is basically our reserve force. We put them in at the first crash site. Now that a second Black Hawk's gone down, we don't have any reserve forces. Jeff, hey, you need to get on your, hel your Humvees and go out to the second crash site. Here's what your listeners may not know. We have six Black Hawks in the skies that day that are carrying troops, and mm -hmm. five of the six get shot down that night. Two of them crash in the city in enemy territory. The other three are able to make it back to some kind of United Nations uh, base so that we don't have to do a rescue mission to go get to five crashed Blackhawks, just to two. But the rest of the night becomes a, a rescue mission to get pilots and their crew and the, the guys on back of the aircraft, um, get them back out of there alive if anybody is alive. And if not, because we don't leave fallen comrades to fall into the hands of the enemy. Now it's a recover the bodies and get their bodies back to the base. And it ends up taking until nine o'clock the next morning. Yeah. I was going to ask, um, and, and we're going to talk about how your faith propelled you through those moments and, and even how the soldiers around you took notice of that. Uh, and ultimately you're awarded the silver star from, from start to, to quote unquote finish. 
what's the duration of time for, for all, of, all of this happening? Yeah, we launched at about 3.30 in the afternoon. I ended up being like the last vehicle back into our base at about nine o'clock the next morning. So for most of us, it ended up being about 18 hours. Wow. When, it's, it, when it is all said and done, and, and guys, if it's been a while since you've watched Black Hawk Down, I remember watching that movie at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. I can't remember. It, it must have been it was relatively soon after it came out, but they'd show it. You know, and essentially, you've got just a bunch of airmen in the theater watching this thing. And a lot of hooting and hollering in some of the heroic moments. I remember watching it, and it was pretty incredible. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we were at Seymour during that. I'd have to probably check back on my schedule, but no worries. Um, it's Brian Van Holt that plays you in the movie. And right. So you guys yeah. can go back and watch all that and, and see the way it all plays out and, and how it ultimately wraps up for Jeff. But I saw you talk about uh, basically the day after it's all over in this very transformative, real kind of, I guess, kind of pivotal moment in your life. And, and we'll talk to you about how you're a pastor now and, and maybe it kind of started on that day. So what happened the day after this harrowing experience for you? Yeah. Well, first, let me tell you about my experience at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. <laughs> um, quick story. When we were leaving Somalia, it was kind of a, there wasn't a whole lot of people rolling up their sleeves to help us get out. Um, in fact, President Clinton basically said, hey, you guys, we're done in Somalia. You figure it out, get back to the country. We're not doing, it, doing any more combat operations. So our big boss made the coordinations to get an aircraft over there to pick us up. We'll get the equipment out later, but let's just get the people out of Somalia. And uh, they flew a C-5 over there, grabbed us, brought us back to Seymour Johnson, and then we landed like early, early in the morning, um, a few weeks after this big battle at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. And my uh, commanding, my former commanding officer was standing there waiting for us um, as we got off of the, the aircraft. But there were a couple of pilots from Seymour Johnson that decided, hey, gas up the airplanes. We're gonna fly these guys from North Carolina back to Columbus, back to Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, where their home base is, because if not, they're going to spend a week or two here trying to coordinate the aircraft. So there were a couple of pilots that just gassed their, the aircraft up and loaded us on the back and flew us back there without really even any permission, just like, hey, whatever you guys need, we'll yeah. take care of it. Um, and I still remember the fact that those pilots were willing to stick their neck out like that um, and do that for us. Still, That's, that's, uh, how, th that's how they do it, man. Uh that's the fourth ops group, the fourth fighter wing over there. I mean, uh, it's a special place for my family, obviously. And uh, that's, a, that's a neat story. Yeah, I think the world of those guys who didn't have to do that because they didn't know us and didn't really have, you know, a dog in this fight. But they were like, hey, whatever you guys need. Um, it was beautiful. My dad, yeah, is, so my dad is likely listening to this episode right now, probably saying, I remember that. I remember, you know, because we were there early 90s through 1995 kind of time frame. He was uh, made his way through the Eagles and the Chiefs. So he was flying F-15s at the time. So it would have been KC-10 guy, 130s or something, taking you guys yeah, back. We, so we flew back in on a C-5 and then we got loaded up onto two or three C-130s um, mm -hmm. at Seymour Johnson. And they all just put us on the back took of the C-130s and took us straight to Lawson Army Airfield in Fort Benning, Georgia. But I, I just want to say, if your dad's listening, man, thank you guys for being willing to stick your neck out for us because you didn't have to do that, but you did. And it means the world to me. 
that's kind of how uh, that's kind of how we roll, right? And you talked about those moments where in combat too, you can't leave your brothers behind. It is what distinctly I still to this day makes the American military just how special it is. And honestly, it's a big genesis for why we started this show here to highlight those stories about how we we, we leave no one behind. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's amazing what those airmen um, airmen did for us. So back to the day after the battle. Yeah. Um, for me, getting shot at in Somalia, getting to the point where for most of those 18 hours, I wasn't concerned that I was going to die. I was convinced. And when I tell audiences that they're like, yeah, whatever, Jeff. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I was 100% certain for all 18 hours, I'm not going to see tomorrow. But as you just described, I, I have this very solid Christian faith. I had this Christian faith before I joined the army, before I became a ranger, long before I went to my first combat tour in Panama. So this faith is there to sustain me during this 18 hour battle. And I mean, sustain me in such a way that I know I'm going to die, but I also have this solid assurance of eternity and heaven. So I'm not really that concerned about death. Hmm. And my buddies, they noticed, and I, I mean, really noticed because the day that I, that the battle's over with, when I arrived back to the base and, and again, I pull in on a Humvee that's just riddled with bullet holes, half, you know, bunch of guys wounded um, and blood all over the back from a guy who's killed in action. My buddies are waiting for me when I get back and they're waiting to ask me questions about my faith. And the questions were basically like, hey, Jeff, I listened to your voice last night over the radio and everybody else was totally terrified, but you seem like you were calm. I don't even understand how that was possible. Or more than a few of them said, I watched you in the city streets, man, and you have something that I don't have. And we've been through the exact same training, but I don't get how you were able to be so calm. And it was a moment where I really started to talk about my faith. I mean, I was already talking about my faith, but people just weren't listening before this. And now they're hungry to hear it. And there was almost a moment. I never really heard like an audible voice from God, but there was almost a moment where I just felt this overwhelming sense right there on the airfield in Mogadishu, Somalia, where God was saying, Jeff, I want you to do something different than just be a shooter and kick indoors. Other guys can do that. I want you to take care of warriors at the soul level, which set me on a path to become an army chaplain. Now, I just want to say, like, the actor who played me in the movie, you just mentioned him, Brian Van Holt. When Brian was studying up for this role, and he and I talked just a little bit before they started filming the movie, Brian said, hey, man, I got to ask you this question. Everybody that I talk to says when the bullets are flying, you're totally calm. And I want to know, like, is that true? And if it is true, how on earth is that possible? And I said, yeah, Brian, at the time I was totally calm because I was totally convinced that I was going to die, but I didn't have any fear about it because I had this solid faith and it made all of the difference. In fact, I spent the rest of my career in the army trying to convince guys and gals in uniform that being a man or a woman of faith makes a difference on the battlefield. It makes a big difference. 
Um, that's really why I retired next to a military community and live right outside of Fort Benning, Georgia today, just so I can stay around those guys and gals for the rest of my life. Do you, in the moments uh, during that conflict, and you talk about the bullets are flying and they saw you and they heard you, and you mentioned even maybe that, that slight audible. I mean, do you remember thinking to yourself, I've got the armor I've got the armor of God on me. And maybe that's what it was. I mean, and maybe he puts you in that position to, to quite literally walk out and show with action what that armor can do, uh, yeah. regardless of the bullets. I mean, yeah. because it must have been something that. I, I rolled back out in the city streets with my squad on those Humvees multiple times. I spent all night long, but I went back and forth, taken wounded and dead in and out of the city streets with guys getting wounded around me. And there was a moment where I just got serious with, with Jesus and said, I'm certain I'm going to die. I know where I'm going to spend eternity. I need you to be with me tonight so that no matter what I do next, I don't cost one of my men their life unnecessarily. And if you want to do a miracle and I survive this big battle, then it's totally in your hands. But if you choose not to, I know where I'm going to spend eternity. And for me, that was a moment where I just, I, I had this sense of peace about it. I think I'm trying to say this to your listeners. There is nothing special about me, and there's definitely nothing special about my faith. What's special is the God that I believe in. And I realized on that battlefield, I have a little booklet out there that describes my experience, and it's entitled Bulletproof Faith. Mm. And what I realized in Somalia showed up again and again in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what I realized is God has appointed the day of my death. There's nothing I can do to change that. If it's going to be in Somalia, then there's nothing I can do to stop that. If it's not going to be in Somalia, no matter what the enemy throws at me, I don't have to worry. Like I am literally bulletproof until God is ready uh, for me to come home. And when that moment happens, there's nothing I can do to stop that. So why worry? Hmm. That became my, my, you know, my thought process, not just in Somalia, but that just became my thought process. I did a lot of combat deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was my thought process. Like if tonight's the night, then I can't stop it. And if yeah. it's not the night, then there's nothing the enemy can throw at me. That's gonna, that's gonna, uh, you know, kill me. So why worry? I want to keep this conversation going for a few more minutes, but, I, but before we leave Somalia, while you were there, uh, and you have this incredible experience, you also get arguably the best news you could ever get in your entire life. And yeah, it comes, in, it comes in letter formation. Can, can you tell right. me the story about yeah. finding out that amazing news? Yeah, Why so this is this tough, terrible place. Yeah, this is before the days of the internet, y'all. I'm that old. And when my wife was writing me letters, I got a letter in the mail. We had been married for about three years, been trying the whole time to have a baby. And I got a letter in the mail. I read the letter sitting on a little canvas cot in an air, air, aircraft hangar in Somalia. And I dropped it like it was burning my fingers because the letter said, hey, the baby is on the way and I should be, you know, I'm due basically around this time. And I'm like, baby, um, I didn't even know that she was pregnant. She learned that she was pregnant right after I left for Somalia and got a letter in the mail saying, got a baby on the way which definitely factored into, you know, my thoughts on the battlefield, like, okay, 
Now I got a family, not just a wife, but I got a child to think about um, on the battlefield. But you're right. Some of the best news I've ever received. Well, after uh, after those moments um, and then this, it was a pivot transition, right? To become a chaplain when you're already at that point in your career. Is that a, is that a road less traveled kind of journey? Oh, it, it seems to me like it would be a little bit different than maybe most path, most, most path there. So how's all that kind of play out? Yeah, man, I'm on this. I'm a sergeant in the Ranger Regiment with a lot of combat experience, which means I'm on the fast track um, as an enlisted dude. And when I let people know that I really strongly feel God may want me to be a minister and a chaplain, man, it went through the ranks like wildfire. But it's not easy. Um, the requirements to become a military chaplain are quite extensive. In fact, most people will take more than 10 years just to meet the basic requirements to be able to enter the military as a chaplain. And I ended up taking almost 10 years. Now, I, I did have the privilege of staying a lot of that time in the Army on active duty to do an undergraduate degree and take care of a seminary education and get some experience working at a church before I can even apply to the military as a chaplain. But yeah, man, a long, hard uphill road to become a military chaplain. And I really think it should be that difficult because I think America's warriors deserve the greatest ministers possible. That's a, that's a great point. And, uh, and, and it shows the, level of responsibility that you're taking on in that role. Cause you're there to counsel those warriors during the hardest things they may ever face. Yeah. yeah. Now in my case, I had this huge benefit as an army chaplain of being able to say, Hey man, I know what it's like to be in combat. I know what it feels like to get shot at. I have been there and I can help you when you struggle with it. Cause I know exactly what it feels like. Not every chaplain can say that, it's okay. The chaplains that can't say that, just being willing to be with them, guys and gals that are in combat, that makes all of the difference. But for me, I had a huge leg up on other chaplains just because of my previous enlisted, previous military experience in combat. And I get the sense that post-military career, uh, this idea to, to continue uh, uh, speaking the word, preaching the word, teaching to be a pastor. I mean, it just seems like that path was, was probably pretty clear for you. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it was so overwhelmingly clear to me in Somalia that I've never really looked back, but I also, I love warriors and I really wanted to stick around warriors for the rest of my life. So when my wife and I, who are high school sweethearts, when, when it was time to retire, we both just decided, let's stay in this military town. Let's stay around the military for the rest of our life. I love these guys and gals. I'm so privileged to be able to serve in their midst and plant a church with a whole lot of military folks in our community. How has that been? And, and what, what kind of impacts have you seen? You know, what kind of fruit has been bearing from that, from that experience? Well, um, I had the honor of having a lot of military and their families in our church. But then again, I live in a massive military town. So a lot of pastors have a whole lot of military in their church. In my case, I really do believe these are some of the greatest guys and gals that will ever pass through a church. Other pastors struggle with this because they don't stay in church for the rest of their life because the army is going to, the military moves them every few years. In my case, I'm like, awesome. If we've got you for six months or six years, doesn't matter. 
We're going to pour into you. We're going to give you everything that, uh, that we've got. And when it's time for you to move on to the next duty station, we hope that we've made a big impact in your life. And you'll take that and go make a big impact in somebody else's life. So for me, it's kind of a privilege to be around these guys and gals, even if it's only for a few months, let alone a few years. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the Unbeatable podcast. And you've got uh, some platforms we're able to share, I'm sure, stories and, and those things. So just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I launched the Unbeatable podcast about two, almost three months ago as a goal of just trying to help get a message out to people that generally speaking, don't want anything to do with church, not really interested in talking about Jesus. And by the way, the Unbeatable podcast is not designed to just strictly talk about Jesus. But I started realizing, you know, I have a lot of friends, not just military friends, but I've had the honor of getting to know a lot of pretty amazing people who have gone through really, really tough stuff. And they've come out stronger on the other side. And then it occurred to me, you know what? I have sat and listened to their stories for hours, just on the edge of my seat, riveted by what they say. And I'm certain that many people will benefit from listening to their stories too. So Unbeatable, the name, just describes guys and gals that have gone through some overwhelmingly challenging things and they didn't let it beat them. They, they ended up facing the challenges, making it through it and other people can learn from their stories. So my whole goal, like you, Brian, is to just introduce them to some pretty amazing people. I love, dang it. I love it, man. Right. And see my whole point of what we started here too. And I love how you're doing it as well. And that's what I love about this space and the ability to create and share these stories is there are thousands, thousands and thousands who have gone above and beyond to do something outside of themselves. No. And you think about like the reason why I wanted to have Spanky Peterson on who flew that payfalk that picked up Marcus Luttrell is like a lot of people know who Marcus Luttrell is, but who's the guy that got him? Yeah, right. right? Like, somebody had to go get him. Somebody, <laughs> right? yeah. somebody looks over his shoulder and flies the helicopter out and like, they're like, who's that guy? Yeah. Right? Let, let's share those or Eric Maddox who did all the interrogations that led to capturing Saddam. And you know, same See, kind of things like they're, they're regular folks get put into extraordinary scenarios. And there's something powerful about hearing that. I think in our society today, when, when there is, quite frankly, just a ton of negativity that tries to pull us, if we, if we, right, me, you, our listeners, our audiences, if we can continue to try to come to the middle and remember that, I think that's where we can, can show how we still got that fight, we still got that spirit in us, yeah. and what, what makes us incredibly powerful, in our opinion, right? Right. Um, uh, servants of a, of a great God, but, but also, just, you know, good people. How can we do that more? Yeah. One of the things I love about pick up the six podcast is you're doing essentially what I'm trying to do just to say, listen, man, these are regular dudes and regular guys and regular gals mm -hmm. who have gone through something amazing. And if they can go through it and survive it and come out stronger on the other side, then so can you. And I think we just, like you just mentioned, Everybody just needs to hear more stories like, hey, if she can handle what she just went through, then I can handle what I'm going. We all need to hear stories like that. Yeah, we, we need to we need to focus on that perspective a little bit. Final thoughts before we go is kind of, yeah, where, where do you think we are right now? Because um, because they'd have you believe that this might be the worst time we've ever lived. Where do you think we are right now? That's, that's, oh, a, that's an open, it's open-ended question, right? But yeah. Now, if you look at a, uh, world history, we are no better off 
but we're also no worse off than almost every generation that came before us. There are some generations that went through far worse than what we're going through internationally, globally right now. This global pandemic, as bad as it is, it doesn't even scratch the surface of the Black Plague. Um, you know, the economic challenges, the whole great resignation that businesses are going through. Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult, but it's nothing compared to the Great Depression that the whole world experienced. The one thing that I am really concerned, I, so I'm, I am convinced when people come together, when they hold each other up, when they have a rock solid faith and when they come alongside one another, man, um, we will be able to make it through whatever life throws at us next. One thing that I am most concerned about is the polarization of our popular of our population. And it's happening not because of Democrats or Republicans, not because of race or gender or because of social and economic reasons. It's the news. And the news is pulling people to extremes and there's no conversation left in the middle like, it, it was okay if you had a different political opinion than I did 40 years ago. Hey, we just didn't agree, but we could have civil conversations. Today, unfortunately, what it feels like is if you and I don't agree politically, then you're a bad person and I hate you and we can't talk anymore. That right there, man, that is very, very scary to me. Um, I talk about this with my children who are grown now and just say, man, the future of our country is in dangerous, it's, it's in a dangerous place. And if, if something happens catastrophic, it's going to happen from the inside out. And it's because we stopped being able to listen to somebody who disagrees with us and stopped being able to respect somebody who has a different opinion than us. And now we just hate them because they don't share our opinion. And I believe really this 24-hour news cycle that we're on is feeding this um, insanity around us i, I feel that i, I talk to one another we totally do and i'll even admit i feel the poll sometimes i'll see um you know whether it's a tweet or a, a post somewhere that that does fly counter to something that i believe and i you even feel sometimes you feel that pull that pull to say um just how wrong they are it, it, it is it, it's such a challenge that the news and the ability to communicate without having to really talk to people, I think presents. I, I really want to say to your listeners though, Brian, have strong opinions, be willing to stand up for your convictions, look somebody else in the eye and say, listen, man, I think you're wrong. Here's why I think you're wrong. All of those things are strong and good and healthy for our country. Those have been part of our country since our founding fathers got mm -hmm. up and disagreed with each other in the Continental Congress. But what we have to be able to do is look people in the eyes and say, I disagree with you, man, and here's why. But that doesn't mean that I hate you. And that's where we need to figure some things out internally, because what the conversation sounds to me like on the evening news is because I disagree with you, I hate you. And that's a really, really bad place to be. It sure is. It sure is. Man, I am just so incredibly grateful for the chance to get to meet you today to hear your story. I know you've talked about it a lot and we don't take for granted what it takes to go back into those moments because they are incredible moments in your life. I'm just so thankful to, to hear it and, and to dig in on this topic. Uh, and I feel like we could do this for two or three hours, but oh, man, I, I, do I, do too. I, 
I don't mind talking about Somalia because I really did have the privilege of serving right next to my heroes. And I like to talk about my heroes as much as I can. So my heroes were on the top gun of my Humvee and in the helicopter flying over my head and, and the CCT and the PJ guy that was on my left and on my right. Those are my heroes. He was a 24-year-old sergeant during the Battle of Mogadishu, uh, also known as Black Hawk Down on that day. Uh, not only a Humvee uh, and his tactical armor, but I believe the armor of God was on my friend Jeff Struker on that day. And it is what propelled him to become a chaplain and then to ultimately continue to serve his community, pastoring a church in Georgia today. My brother, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, thank you, man. It's been great to be with you. He's Jeff Struker. I'm Brian Jodis, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.